We were a small, not so sexy business for 16 years. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I wasn't paying myself a lot. You know, there's a lot of doubt and, you know, where is this going? And, you know, should I be doing this? Am I ever going to provide for my family like I want to? So yeah, up until then, there was a lot of doubt and, you know, I liked what I was doing. I was selling environmental products. I was, you know, I felt like I was making a difference, but from a personal and financial perspective, you know, there was doubt, but I would have to say once that window opened and we jumped through, I mean, it was crazy how that took off. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a kid from Chicago moved to Boulder, Colorado and built an eco-empire built on the backbone of compostable, disposable cups. All right, all right. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us continue to produce this show. On today's episode, we are talking to Steve Savage. Cool name, right? Well, Steve is the president and CEO of 1908 Brands, and Steve is best known for his previous company, Eco Products, which seized the window of opportunity when they saw that compostable cups made of corn resin, yeah, you heard that right, corn resin, were going to be a thing. Odds are, if you travel or buy just about anything in a plastic cup, cold coffee, smoothies, draft beer, soda, Your lips have touched Steve's cups. Well, that wasn't supposed to sound as weird as it just did, but you get what I mean. Today, Steve Savage is the founder and CEO of 1908 Brands, a family of brands that develops natural and trusted products for a healthier home and planet. 1908 Brands currently consists of six brands, Boulder Clean, Schultz's, Thrive Tribe, Three Bears, Pasta J's, and Bundle Organics. I'm sure you've seen some of these on your local store shelves nationwide. Steve is a committed conservationist and entrepreneur who is continually searching for new ways to offer effective, innovative, and affordable green products. In just a bit, we'll hear his pivotal story about how he came to devote his life to building businesses based on preserving the environment. So enough of me, let's get to it. This is his story. So, Steve, thank you for joining us here on the Baby Got Backstory podcast. Uh, you are currently the president and CEO of 1908 Brands. What is 1908 Brands? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Uh, 1908 Brands is a story that comes from my great, great uncle. And in 1908, he lived in the Bay Area and came across 300 acres of redwood trees that were about to be harvested for replacement of the city of San Francisco that had a fire in 2007. And William Kent, my great-great-uncle, didn't want those redwood trees to be harvested, so he bought 
that land out from the lumber companies. And to save it, there was a new Antiquities Act uh, by the U.S. government where you could donate land uh, under that Antiquities Act and save it from being harvested. And so he worked with Teddy Roosevelt. There's some great letters on our website between Teddy Roosevelt and William Kent on this donation. And that happened in early 1908. And that 300 acres of redwood trees is now called the John Muir National Woods. And if you, if you read the letters, it's just an amazing story about, you know, Teddy Roosevelt wanting to name them the William Kent National Woods. And William Kent said, no, I have five Husky boys all with the middle name Kent. If they can't keep the name alive, you know, so be it. Please name it after my good friend and environmental environmentalist, John Muir. Uh, so, yeah. That's now the John Muir National Woods, still there today, beautiful spot. I try to go there at least once a year, um, and for over you know, 110 years, that's just been a, a national treasure. And, you know, we felt like that story of environmental gifting, environmental stewardship was, you know, an amazing story to, you know, build a company and, you know, our culture and principles around well, that's a pretty famous tract of land. I mean, you know, the John Muir Woods is, is well known. I had no idea that that uh, started the 1908 Brands. And so what does 1908 Brands do as a business today? So 1908 Brands is the parent company to what is going to be eventually, you know, a dozen, maybe two dozen brands. And we really want to change the products that are in people's homes. It, it can be, you know, 1908 brand started with Boulder Clean, which is a line of plant-based cleaners and detergents. Uh, we also uh, created a, a product called the Compo Keeper, which is a, a fancy trash can for food storage that eliminates odor and fruit flies. Uh, that brand has sold to a company called Reva Shelf. Uh, then we have also gotten into food brands. So we have five food brands right now, and they're all in the, you know, natural food space and you know we leverage our resources and our relationships to try to make these particular brands successful so right now we have six brands and they're everything from non-food to food brands when you say you want to change the products in people's homes what's wrong with the the products in people's homes why do they need changing well i'm you know in the u.s homes you know i like to compare it to europe i mean in europe the products in the homes are just healthier. They're more environmental, sustainable. They've been built with sustainability in mind. You can reuse the containers. You can reuse the packaging. You know, these are a lot of concepts that 1908 Brands wants to bring into the U.S. homes. Right now, U.S. products are kind of throwaway items. You know, the average U.S. consumer goes through I forget the stat. It's somewhere around 20 tons of trash per year. Um, it's just a ridiculous number of products that they eat. The indoor air quality in our homes are three times uh, more toxic than European homes. So, I mean, it's just, there's so many changes. wants to provide good solutions to make, make that easier. Yeah, and you started off our, our conversation talking uh, a bit about your uncle and his act to to preserve 300 acres of forest. 
you know, I know that you grew up in, in Boulder, Colorado, but what was young Steve like, you know, let's like go back to like, what were you like when you were eight? Were you an environmentalist and, and into the protecting the environment at that time? Right. So a little bit. And I mostly grew up in Boulder. I actually lived in Chicago until I was 12. Uh, my two older sisters went out to the University of Colorado. And as my dad would visit them in Boulder, Colorado, he fell in love with Boulder. So when I was 12, we moved to Boulder. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. What was that like? Like dad just comes home and he's like, we're moving. I mean, what, what did you think at the time? Yeah, uh, I remember being excited about it. Um, Colorado, you know, when you're from Chicago and you're 12 years old, I mean, you know, the stereotype of Chicago, uh, Colorado is pretty exciting. So I was excited about it. You know, when I first got here, you know, it was kind of tough. I missed my friends, but rapidly got into, you know, I was already playing competitive tennis. You know, my dad would flood our backyard in Chicago. So I grew up playing hockey. Um, so I got into sports pretty quick. And I look back and, you know, uh, so excited he made that move. Love Boulder and know a lot of people from Chicago that have moved to Boulder and Colorado. So it was a big move, especially for me and my sisters. I mean, our family uprooted their home and, you know, all their friends back in Chicago and, you know, followed them to Boulder. So especially my sister, Lisa, I mean, she was a freshman when we moved. She's like, hey, why are you following me? But anyways, it was, it was a big move for the family. But my dad, even in Chicago, I mean, he was a recycler. Well, and then what did that look like then? Because like no one was a recycler then, you know? So in yeah. Chicago, a recycler, tell me a little bit about him. What, where did, where does his, I mean, it, it does sound, and I don't want to put words in your mouth that this, there's like a legacy of environmentalism in your family, but like, so how does he become a, a recycler at that time? And, and certainly in Chicago, it, it isn't easy, I have to imagine. Yeah. I mean, it was rare. I mean, I didn't really know that as a kid, but looking back at it and knowing now, I mean, it was a rare thing, but we used to go to uh, a place. We lived in Hinsdale, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And we, there is a recycling center. And that is how I was brought up is recycling. I mean, for me to put a, you know, a can in a trash can is like the strangest thing in the world. Um, it just doesn't go there. And, you know, I've been brought up my entire life thinking that way. And, you know, when I be, really became an environmentalist uh, is a story when I was 14. So we had moved to Boulder and he immediately got into climbing 14ers. So my dad and I and others and some of his friends, some of his friends from Chicago would come out and we would knock off 14ers. And really quickly, you wanted to like describe what a 14er is for those people that may be listening that don't know. Okay. Uh, so a 14er, there's 53 14ers in the United States. I think of the 53, 43 or 45 are in Colorado. The rest are in California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, so mo most of the 14ers, you know, we were knocking out in Colorado. He also went out and I didn't go as right when I was 12 and I wasn't old enough to go and did Mount Rainier. Uh, I think that's technically in Washington. And, you know, he got me into climbing 14ers. Uh, there was one particular 14er when I was 14. Actually, it was a trip. Uh, we went to Durango, Colorado, and we took what's called uh, the Silverton Railroad uh, that goes from Durango to Silverton. It's one of the 
I think still is one of the original coal burning uh, trains. And halfway between Durango and Silverton, a group of eight of us got off. It stopped in the middle of nowhere. And we hiked eight miles up to what's called the, ironically, Chicago Basin, where the Twin Lakes are. And around Twin Lakes are four 14ers, uh, Wyndham, Sunlight, Euless, and North Euless. And so we were knocking those off. It's one of the most beautiful spots I've ever been in my life. And, you know, kind of going back, I'm telling you this, uh, this story that pretty much changed my life. And I, I tell this story uh, when I have won an environmental award and so forth, because it really did change my life and how I see the outside world. But here we are at the Twin Lakes. We knock out sunlight. We knock out Wyndham. And our last day, we're climbing Euless. And we get to the top of Euless, and between Euless and North Euless is there's a ridge, and it's called Sidewalk in the Sky. And going from Euless to North Euless across this sidewalk in the sky, I remember it's probably five feet wide, like a sidewalk. And if you walk down a sidewalk, obviously you aren't scared to death, but on Sidewalk in the Sky, it drops about 2,000 feet on both sides. There's a cross breeze. So you're kind of down on all fours. And it's not really technical, but I mean, you got to maneuver up and down a few rocks. And really that, the power of that situation is really what kind of changed my life. And ever since then, I mean, I've been an environmentalist. You know, my dad and I, you know, we started my first company, Eco Products, right when I was out of college. So, I mean, really from that time, I appreciated the outdoors. Right now, I've climbed about 38 of the 14ers, continued climbing 14ers, continued to get out into nature in any way I could. I've joined a number of uh, nature nonprofits uh, protecting our natural resources. So that's kind of the story, my childhood, and basically how I became an environmentalist. Yeah, and let's go back to that trip. I mean, it's such an epic trip. I've I've known people to do it and ride the railroad and you hop off and it's just one of these like quintessential adventures that 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 really is, you know, there's not a lot of those left and it's a really amazing trip. But what was it about that? So you say you're at the sidewalk of the sky, you're looking down, you're on all fours scurrying. Like, but but what about that made you say like, "Hey, like you know, because because a lot of us go out in the environment, myself included, and we enjoy it, but we don't all come back saying, you know what, we're going to devote our life to protecting the environment. We're going to devote our life to sustainability. We're going to devote, you know, put our money where our mouth is and feed our family based on these principles, which is about like the biggest commitment you can make. So granted at that time, you may or may not have known that that was, that was your path, but what really was it about that experience that, that made you say, Hey, like, like this is worth protecting. Yeah, you know, it's really the days that led to being on the sidewalk in the sky. Uh, it was in June. The wildflowers were just unbelievable. There were some old mining caves that we could explore. It really was, you know, the whole trip was probably seven days. It was really probably my first trip where, you know, a lot of these 14 are day trips, right, or one or two days it was probably the first trip that I spent a full week up there at, you know, 12,000 feet, which was our base camp to hit those four 14ers. I mean, it really was getting away. You know, obviously we didn't have cell phones then, but it was really getting away from the city and everything that you knew is 
probably what changed my life, you know, why that particular trip did it. But it was just the beauty of the, the place. The Chicago Basin is just a gorgeous area surrounded by these four 14ers with the wildflowers. And yeah, I mean, I think all that is, you know, the sunsets, eating, you know, your freeze-dried food. It just, it was just an amazing week. Yeah. And so you're, you're 14. I think, I think you said at the time, is that right? Or you're 12 or 14 at, during that trip? I uh, moved to Colorado when I was 12. I was 14 on that trip. Cool. Yeah. So you're growing up in Boulder, Colorado, which has, you know, undergone massive change in the last 20, 30 years. You know, I think, you know, most people, at least when I was growing up, my uh, whole reference of Boulder, Colorado was from Mork and Mindy, uh, sleepy <laughs> college town. I mean, what was Boulder like at that time when when you were going to high school and, and, and spending your formative teen years? Yeah, I mean, it was much smaller, but and it was, you know, but it was always an outdoor athletic town. I mean, you had, you know, the Coors Classic bicycle race, which was one of the biggest bicycle races. I mean, it was, you know, that was already happening. The Boulder Boulder was already happening. So, I mean, it was even back then known as kind of a, a Mecca sports town, you know, even the Seven Eleven team, which included Eric Hyden, you know, stayed right down the street from us and my sisters got them to join us and join them in our hot tub, which was kind of entertaining, but yeah, I mean, Boulder, it's always been an outdoor town still is always brings the best athletes. So, I mean, a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same as well. Yeah. And I imagine your, your dad at the very least had to be like, wow, like finally some people that like want to recycle and, and, and believe in yeah. some of the same things I, I do, but like, like, I, you know, like I know that you weren't out there being a crusader at, at, at 14, like you were a teenager, you know, and you're growing up and you're doing your thing and you go off to college, you grow up in a college town, but where did you go to college? Uh, did you stay in, stay in town and go to Boulder? Uh, actually I went to the university of Kansas. I originally went there to play tennis uh, I did in Chicago. I played pretty competitive tennis. I actually played Andre Agassi in the Chicago Open uh, when I was 11. How'd that um, go? <laughs> he, he kicked my butt, but it was fun. I mean, I didn't, he wasn't Andre Agassi at the time. He was just another player. He wasn't 11 with a full uh, bleached mullet and uh, tight shorts. Right. And I don't even really remember that closely, his haircut and so forth. I just know he was... Uh, one of the best players in the country, but I do, you know, that's always been something I've remembered was playing him, but uh, yeah, I went to the university of Kansas to play tennis. I played for four months. I was not getting a scholarship and I was kind of tired of tennis and I ended up loving the university of Kansas. Great kids, great Midwest kids. Got my, went into the business school, got an economics degree, you know, was in and out in four years. I ended up actually, uh, hockey's my other love, ended up playing club hockey there as well. Yeah. And so what was your plan? So you go to Kansas, um, you know, you, you think tennis might be a path for you. And then, um, you realize, you know, I think a lot of people have that. Um, certainly I did where you're like, okay, you know, this is cool, but I want to go on to different things. I mean, you got a degree in business and economics. I mean, what'd you think you were going to do with it at the time? You know, I went on semester at sea, my second semester junior year, and I fell in love with some Rus Russian culture. Uh, I met some kids from Russia in 1989, so I graduated college in 1990. 
the Soviet Union was falling apart. I actually thought I was going to kind of study Russian, go to into, into international finance, get a you know a corporate job speaking Russian and getting up as U.S. businesses, I thought at the time would be moving into Russia. So I took Russian my senior year. I still have these Russian friends. I actually meet up with them uh, when we're in Europe the last couple of years. But yeah, that's kind of what coming out of college, I thought I was going to do. I uh, got into Thunderbird, which is uh, in Phoenix, which is kind of an international finance school. But it was really the June after college that my dad pitched this idea and of a business. And, t- and t- take, take me there. So like, like, do you remember that day? Yeah. So he was um, following his environmental commitment. He was actually chairman of the board of EcoCycle, which is our local recycling facility. And uh, he had this business concept of starting a business because if you think of the recycle arrow, there's three loops, right? There's three arrows and they all kind of bend and they make a, a, a loop. And the first one is collection, which as we've talked about, you know, my family has always been doing forever. The second loop is manufacturing, but nobody was really doing the third loop, which is taking the remanufactured products and getting them back into the market. Uh, so my dad and I started this company called Eco Products. Uh, in 1990. And basically, the company mission was, you know, to buy everything from recycled copy paper, and at the time, fax paper and legal pads, and even, you know, toilet paper made from recycled materials and paper towels and trash bags and so forth. And so we started distributing all these recycled materials and starting a business uh, that, again, called Eco Products. And, you know, I would I go to fraternities or sororities or preschools or small businesses or the University of Colorado and say, hey, I got some recycled goods. Do you want to buy them? Uh, was that exciting at the time? Because, you know, like, I mean, when you were coming out of college and you think you're going to conquer the world and and I, I'd still love to hear, like, I mean, does your dad sit you down? Is it like this like TV moment where you're fishing and he's like, hey, son, you know, I've got this idea. Like, like how does right. that all go down? We were on the back porch of our house. Um, we were in a HOA called Devil's Thumb. So we were, you know, we backed up to the mountains, to the trails, and it was on our back porch. I mean, I remember it vividly. Uh, my cousin, uh, David McIntyre, was in the conversation as well. He was getting his MBA at CU. So it was really my dad and I and David McIntyre that started Eco Products. And were you stoked or were you just kind of like, yeah, my dad's got an idea and I'm not, I don't really have a plan. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll sling some recycled uh, trash can liners. Yeah. I, I decided to put Thunderbird, the international finance uh, degree on hold. I was actually going to went back to Russia that fall to travel with some of my friends and practice my Russian. I was still at the time probably thinking I was going to, you know, still be in international finance with a specialty in Russian. But I agreed, yeah, I'll start this concept with you. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I wasn't thinking it would be that big of a company, but it was something to do. You know, it didn't pay me, but it was something to do. And so we started it. And, you know, we we had success. 
Like right away? I mean, like right away were people buying? I have to imagine it was a hard, like we all know startups are tough, right? And I have to imagine it was a bit of a evangelical kind of pushing the boulder uphill uh, situation, you know? I remember my first 10 case order. I mean, I would get, I would get a fraternity or get a sorority or a church or a preschool. Eventually, I mean, they would call and we'd place orders. At first, we had chicken scratch them on, you know, carbonless paper and, you know, computers were just kind of getting started then. But I mean, it kept me busy and it was a job. And, you know, out of college, you're happy to have a job. You know, honestly, for that summer, it was probably just buying time until I went back to Russia for two months. And then I was going to get my international finance, but it grew and it kept us busy. Um, I did go to Russia, but I came back and decided I would stay with Eco Products and continue to grow it. I mean, we went from couple hundred thousand in revenue uh, the first year, then 400,000 in revenue, then 600,000 revenue. I mean, it always grew. Um, I felt good about the products I was selling, the environmental characteristics of them. And, you know, the company ended up after a few years, you know, a couple million in revenue. We had about five trucks that would drive around town. We had drivers and I was a boss. And I mean, it, it just grew slowly. And, you know, in about 2006, you know, when we were about a $5 million company. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me stop you there. And so as I understand it, so, I mean, it was, it was a long time, right? So, I mean, if I'm, if I'm doing the math, you know, we don't have to like get into specifics and and, and how long, but I mean, the company was a nice little business, but it, I mean, and, and please, you know, if I'm, if I'm, speaking out of term, but it was nothing super sexy. It was like a nice little business. It was doing its thing, not super exciting. But then in 2006, and I think this is where you're going, Mm -hmm. you, you, you see an opportunity and, and, and what is that opportunity? Right. So by that point, we were doing all kinds of environmental products. We had environmental building materials and environmental office supplies and environmental janitorial supplies. We had cleaners made from non-toxic chemicals, trash bags made from recycled or were biodegradable. But in around 2005, 2006, there was a new resin uh, that was manufactured by NatureWorks, uh, who is owned by Cargill. And it was a resin that you could make just compostable food service items. And it was called PLA, otherwise known for polylactic acid. And we were having... Ab- and how was polylactic acid created? Yeah, yeah. We were having abnormal success in that part of our business. And the product was cool um, as far as, you know, you can make a plastic cup that you now see around the country and you could brand it. It was made from PLA which was a derivative of corn. So it was from natural resources and also was compostable. So it would return to the earth and it took off. We spent from 06 to 2008 working with various U.S. manufacturers. You know, would you private label this for us? Because we weren't the First ones to do it. So Fabrical was always make already making a corn cup. International Paper was already making a PLA lined hot cup. Active was making a sugarcane plates and so forth. So we first went to these North American manufacturers and said, "Hey, can you private label for us?" And one by one, they said no. And why, why did they say no? Well, they had their own brand. So Fabrical 
had their own brand. The name's escaping me. International Paper had their own brand called Ecotainer. Pactive had their own brand called Earth Choice. And they just, they didn't want to private label, have some private label person competing against them in the market. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. And let's take a step back real quickly, though. So, but like, yeah. you have other products, and there's this kind of new crazy thing, this, this corn cup. And, and if I remember the early versions of it, I mean, it wasn't perfect. That there were some downsides, right? Like, if you left it in your yeah. car, it might melt. Uh, the, right. the, the, the resin itself uh, was often uh, created by an actual insect, if I remember, uh, which would mutate and do weird things. So, like, it was it wasn't like this, like like slam dunk or layup in terms of like business opportunity. Like how did you make that decision to see the market and say, you know what? Like, I really think there's something here. Right. Well, I mean, um, just, uh, you know, I was at Hilton resorts and they said, it's the same price. I can brand it environmental and the quality is the same. I mean, where can I start? So, I mean, really, customer by customer, university by university, distributor by distributor. I mean, they all sort of wanted it. And so, you know, we fixed those bugs by actually going to Asia and having them made in Asia and having them made in Asia, we improved the heat tolerance of it. So they were actually much better at converting this PLA resin to be more heat resistant. So the the heat tolerance went from about 105 degrees to about 135 degrees. So we now could private label. Our quality was better and we could put everything under one brand. So Hilton Resorts could buy their forks. They could buy their souffle container. They could buy their to-go container. They could buy their straws. They could buy their corn cup, their hot cup from one manufacturer as opposed to piecemealing it to a bunch of manufacturers like we had done previously, they could buy it from one. Plus our quality was better and our pricing on average went down 25% from Asia. So now the price was better. And around 2008, if you remember, the price of oil went up to about $155 a barrel. So our resin was actually now cheaper. And so that was, that was our big year when the economy was falling apart in 2008 Eco products went from about five to forty-five million in revenue, and you know that was crazy. That was that was a crazy year. Yeah, and was it that simple? I mean, were you you saw this opportunity uh, to private label, and then you just did you just do it? Did you have to raise money? Like, how did you actually make this bet and make it work? Because you know, I 
at least in my, my thought, like it wasn't that simple. Yeah. I mean, it was from a cash perspective, it was very difficult. I did raise money through a private placement memorandum through friends and family in 07 and 08. In 2008, we actually took our first private equity investment from Greenmont Capital of $2 million. So that definitely helped. But still going from 5 to $45 million is tough. Plus, the cash flow model is terrible because you got to wire money to Asia. And it's a very slow boat coming over. And then the product, you know, it didn't sit in our warehouse very long because actually in 08, we were on allocation of seven of our top 10 items. So, I mean, they went out the minute they came in, um, but then it was another 30 days to get paid. So, I mean, my cash flow model was, you know, about 80 days from when I first wired to Asia to when I got paid by the U.S. distributors. And that was our strategy. We went to U.S. Foods, Cisco Food Service. So we didn't go the direction of a few other, you know, there were a few other companies that were sort of doing this as well. But we were the first one to go into distributors, and that pretty much made us successful because that's how we got into tens of thousands of coffee shops and restaurants and hospitals and universities and stadiums um, was through the U.S. Foods and Cisco Food Service. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, you and I know each other well, and you know, during those kind of—I don't know if they're the early years or sort of the mid years—my uh, wife and I, we would travel. We'd be in Hawaii, we'd see your cups. We'd be at the ski resort, and we'd see your cups. You know, we'd be traveling, and as you mentioned, at Hilton hotels, and we'd take a picture and send it to you. And that was like such an exciting time. But did you? Was there a moment ever when you thought like this might not work, or was it always a rocket ship? It was always a rocket ship. I mean. Yes, before we identified that opportunity and that window opened, there was a lot of times where I was like, and as you touched on, I mean, we were a small, not so sexy business for 16 years. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I wasn't paying myself a lot. You know, there's a lot of doubt and, you know, where is this going? And, you know, should I be doing this? Am I ever going to provide for my family like I want to? So yeah, up until then, there was a lot of doubt and, you know, I liked what I was doing. I was selling environmental products. I was, you know, I felt like I was making a difference, but from a personal and financial perspective, you know, there was doubt, but I would have to say once that window opened and we jumped through, I mean, it was crazy how that took off. Well, not super. Yeah. And super awesome. But like, how did you have the confidence and convince, especially in that friends and family round? You know, I think the private equity, they saw the success and you're like, well, if private equity believes in me, no big deal. But going to that, that friends and family round and saying, trust me, and they're looking at your existing business and being like, well, it's okay. But you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, how did you kind of go in there and have the confidence and as well as just the, the self-belief that you were going to do right by what, what I have to believe are the people that you cared about the most, you know, certainly you cared about your private equity investors. I don't want to say that not to be the case, but when you go friends and family, that's like your kind of, kind of your, your name, right? Your family name, your word. That's like the biggest, yeah. the biggest thing you can risk sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about those 16 years though, is we were always growing and we were always profitable. So we were, we were building a good business. I mean, we weren't super profitable. I mean, it's not like I was making it anywhere close to six digits and so forth, but I mean, it was enough to pay my mortgage. And I mean, it was, it was a decent business. So I, I, you know, I raised money knowing that I could always pay it back because we weren't losing money. 
So that's kind of what gave me the confidence was I knew I could always return the money because at the end of the day, it was environmental products, but it was still products, right? It was still a commodity item. It was either you know, paper towels or copy paper or fax paper at the time. <laughs> if any of you remember what fax paper or fax machines were, but I mean, it was always, it was always a solid business. You know, we always had a good balance sheet. So I, I wasn't that concerned when I had my palm out and, you know, people were writing checks and I'll tell you those early investors, I mean, they made out like bandits too. I mean, $40,000 investors made 1.6 million. I mean, it was, uh, it ended up paying off. Yeah. I mean, you certainly did right by all of them, but like at the time, like to say, Hey, if you give me 40, I'm going to give you 1.6. I don't think you would have seen that coming. No, I didn't see that coming. No. Yeah, no, and it, it's it's such a great success story and, and and really really incredible. But I think sometimes we forget that in, on the backside when everyone's happy, just how hard it is to get there. And so you're building this business. Uh, you go from five to forty five million. You're like, w- w- what's going on with you? Just as a leader with your company, like, w- w- what's happening at that time? So, yeah, I mean, we had to grow. Fortunately, my wife is uh, a human resource specialist, and she was huge as far as helping me develop the team, you know, the processes from a human resource perspective, as far as benefits and so forth. So uh, she was a huge help. Uh, Also hired a, you know, and I think most of it was luck, but we had an amazing team. Luke Vernon was our COO, you know, super fortunate to have him on board at the time, you know, as some of the Boulderites know, he runs Luke circle. He's now uh, with a private equity group. I mean, super smart guy. I mean, really Luke and I, and then another older kind of legend, Jim Lamacusa, who now owns Cusa T. Uh, he was my VP of sales and marketing. So it was really Luke, Jim, and I. Um, so we had a great team. We had great chemistry. Jim spearheaded our sales. Luke spearheaded our operations and a lot of this manufacturing in Asia. And I just also... You know, I kind of ran the show inside the walls um, as far as building the infrastructure. And the good news is the infrastructure was sort of there when that window opened. I mean, we were a $5 million company. We had 12 employees. Like I said, we were profitable. I mean, we we did have the infrastructure, which helped. It's not like we were two people when this opportunity happened. I mean, we had an ERP system. Um, We had a lot of our invoicing and accounting processes in place. Yeah. It was like, almost like you were preparing for that moment and just waiting and, and getting things ready and, and, and making sure that uh, you were prepared as soon as, as soon as you saw your window. And so you grew the company. And again, I think like people just forget that there's this moment where like the idea of a compostable cup and then silverware was kind of like, it's kind of silly. Like, you know, like it was like early adopter kind of stuff. didn't always work. You were like, like, what's going on here? Is this even like, people were just really like, not everyone was super bullish on it, but then uh, both the window of the product and just the trends of where people's heads were in terms of uh, environmentalism, wanting things that were compostable, reducing your carbon uh, and environmental impact, like all these things were coming to the forefront. And so you're having incredible success and you grow the company and, uh, you get an offer to to sell the company. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, another kind of big thing in, you know, the next year, you know, I mentioned Pactive, you know, we were distributing their uh, sugarcane plates and bowls and clamshells. 
2009, they came in in a big way. They knocked us off on our hot cups, really, by design. Each one was a different color. I mean, they were very vicious, the right word. Uh, I mean, they started writing huge checks to U.S. Foods and Cisco Food Service to bring in their line called Earth's Choice. So they, they're an $8 billion company. So our big competitor went after us in a big way in 2009. Were you scared? You know, a little bit because they were writing, you know, $300,000 checks to kick us out. So we had to, I mean, we really had to fight. Where 08, our fight was to get, make enough product and get it from Asia fast enough. But in 2009, active $8 billion company, writing big checks to get kick us out of the distributors, knocking us off. It was, you know, we... We had a number of board meetings. Should we sue them? Because, I mean, it was so obvious they knocked us off, but you can't trademark colors and you can't trademark the, you know, the Earth's map, which was on our hot cups. Um, So we couldn't sue them. But anyways, yeah, we were scared in 09. We still grew from 45 to 65, but we were forecasting about 85 or 90 million that year. So it came in a little sooner and a lot more vicious um, than we anticipated. But to answer your question, I mean, it was a fight against Pactiv for a number of years. We did get an offer in 2012 for the business. We were about $85 million in revenue. It kind of became obvious to me that, you know, could we take this as far as we could? Because we didn't own any equipment. We couldn't get that last 15, 20% cost of goods savings to really compete against those North American manufacturers that actually did have the equipment. So did we take this as far as we could? And, you know, when someone offers you a big check and, you know, and you have to remember at this point, this is 2012, I've been doing this for 22 years. And so we decided maybe we've taken this as far as we can. We need to be purchased by a strategic that has equipment that has machinery that can get us that last 15, 20% that has the same environmental culture and mission that we do. So yeah, I mean, we're, we ran a small process, but we ended up selling to uh, Waddington, North America, otherwise known as WNA in 2012. And was that was that hard? I mean, I have to imagine that you, you know, and, and we see this all the time. I've, I've built businesses. I've talked to a lot of people that have built businesses. It's a little bit like your child. It's a baby. Maybe even, you know, it, it's like something you built from, from nothing into something. I mean, was it hard to sell? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was hard. I mean, it's everything I ever knew for 22 years. So yeah, it was tough, but you know, by then 1908 brands had already started. So when eco products started getting rid of a lot of the stuff like the environmental building materials, the non-toxic cleaners and so forth, I didn't want Boulder Clean, which was the non-toxic cleaners and detergents to die. So I had actually started 1908 brands in 2010 and it absorbed the cleaners. So I already kind of had my hands in another cookie jar when eco products sold. So unfortunately, I didn't get much of a break. I just went from, you know, one business to the other, but I was sort of, you know, still in the game doing what eco products used to do, 
So sold part of the business, but still had another business. And that's, you know, what I'm doing today. Yeah, and, and why is that? I mean, I think we all have this this dream of uh, being on that proverbial rocket ship of finding our window, finding our corn cup, right? <laughs> like whatever that right. might be, uh, having a great exit. And then like, why go back into to kind of startup land again, or at least much smaller and less momentum than what you were experiencing? Why, why do that? And why not just go hang out on the beach and kiteboard and, uh, you know, play a lot of tennis and hockey? Yeah. I mean, I still ask myself that question. I mean, I was still young. I mean, I was uh, 42 at the time. I wasn't ready to retire. Um, I thought Boulder Clean still had a great opportunity. I mean, it was, you know, only one or 2 million at the time, but I, you know, my kids were in grade school or probably junior high, maybe grade school at the time. So it's not like I could retire and kiteboard forever um, and play hockey and so forth. I, you know, I had my parent responsibilities. So yeah, I mean, I just went from one company to another, you know, I, I have a lot of energy and passion and felt like I had one more, you know, business to grow. Yeah. And speaking of that energy and passion, I mean, what are you most excited about right now as it uh, relates to 1908 brands and, and where you're taking the company? Yeah. You know, what's the craziest thing is this year as kind of like eco products, I said in 08, when the economy was falling apart, that was our big year. Ironically, uh, I mean, the, the years at 19 brands, I mean, it's been tough. This is a tough category. It's uh, which is the natural foods channel, natural products, dealing with grocery stores and distributors. I mean, it is a very tough industry. There's uh a lot of marketing money that retailers and distributors expect when you're a smaller company, you know, you're, you can't leverage high volume cost of goods. And so it's been tough, but this is our window. Actually, during this pandemic, we have a, uh, a plant-based EPA registered against the SARS-CoV-2 strand that causes COVID-19 we actually were in development of this right before the pandemic hit. And this is our five to 45 million year, right? In the, you know, as the world has fallen apart. So this is kind of like eco products 2.0. Um, this, and it's really being driven by this plant-based EPA registered disinfectant. And, you know, since the pandemic started, it's gone nationwide with Whole Foods, Aldi's, Sam's Club, regionally with Costco, Nationwide Kroger. So, I mean, it's this is I've been working 10 hour days since the pandemic started, just trying to get more chemical, more bottles, more triggers. You've probably heard, you know, spray triggers. You can't even find them. You couldn't for a while, but we've gotten lucky. Fortunately, our bottle's a little shorter and fatter than most. So, the dip tube length of eight and a half inches is a lot easier to come by. So, I've been able to get spray triggers. Um, we've invested in more molds to make more bottles, but it's funny. I mean, after slugging it out at 1908 brands for 10 years, you know, our window opened and it kind of opened with this EPA registered disinfectant. Yeah. And what's hard about putting a plant-based disinfectant out on the market? I mean, I imagine it can't be easy. It's probably the easy path is to do something that's chemical-based. Yeah, chemicals are uh, a lot easier to make uh, synthetically. 
but you know, this thymol based uh, disinfectant, I mean, it definitely works and there is supply of it. So the chemical actually hasn't been the hard part in this in this thymol-based technology, it's been around for a few years. Uh, seventh generation and Cleanwell also have a disinfectant with this technology that's EPA registered. So the formula has been around a little bit. It's really been the components, you know, the packaging. And because then this entire category, the cleaning and detergent category, has been extremely stressed since this started. I bet. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. As, as we wind to a close, I have a final question for you. You know, if your great uncle, William Kent, and your father, who you know I, understand, I know is no longer with us, um, if they were able to see you today, what do you think they'd say? Oh, I hope that they would say they were proud of me. You know, I think they would say that. Uh, just trying to kind of follow in their footsteps. I mean, they were huge role models you know, something that, uh, you know, I look up to and, you know, I'm just trying to follow in their footsteps and I hope that they would be proud. And so, yeah. And that is Steve Savage from Eco Products and 1908 Brands. What does your window look like? Would you even know it if it opened up right in front of you? Steve certainly does. He saw the window once with corn cups, and it sounds like he's seeing it again with plant-based cleaners. Right on, Steve. Thank you again to Steve and the team at 1908 Brands. Keep saving the world, one eco-product at a time. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 